Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Russ, your host for this week. While we all know that autonomous transportation is the future, we don't know exactly when that will be. Designing and building self-driving vehicles is really hard. And one of the hardest parts is helping cars, buses, and trucks safely interact with unpredictable pedestrians. To discuss this challenge, I'm joined today by Maya Pindias, co-founder and CEO of London-based Humanizing Autonomy, whose AI-powered sensing system leverages computer vision to identify and predict pedestrian behavior. Welcome to What's Next, Maya. Thanks a lot for having me. So maybe we can start with just talking about the different levels of autonomy, just so we have sort of a baseline to be able to speak from. And it goes from one to five. Can you just explain for everybody what those levels are? Absolutely. So if you imagine a spectrum, level one means there's a driver behind the wheel. There's The driver takes action at any time. There might be some alerts um, or lane assist or something that might be um, influencing and helping and aiding the driver. But essentially, it's the driver who takes action and is responsible for driving. So mostly where we are today. Where we are today, yeah. Up to level five, that means there's no driver, there's no steering wheel. The vehicle, the autonomous vehicle, essentially, is responsible to take action at any time. Imagine driving through London and all those pedestrians, cyclists, really people around around the vehicle and the autonomous car really needs to understand what's happening around it. So that's the most challenging of all levels. And where would you say we are sort of in the technology spectrum today? I mean, so much money has been poured into autonomous vehicle companies. I think Zeus just announced they raised another $200 million. It's a billion dollars just of funding at this point. But we still seem to be pretty far away from level five. So how would you sort of characterize the current state of the vehicle technology market? I believe the best way to describe it is to look at different environments so, yes, there is level four. Level four meaning an autonomous vehicle, obviously driving autonomously, but there's still a safety driver behind the wheel that in some cases can take action. Level four autonomous vehicles are being tested. The thing is that they're tested in, in, in almost constrained environments, almost operational design domains, as you call them. Usually very flat and sunny. <laughs> flat and sunny. California is great for it. Yep. Arizona is amazing for it. Yes. Usually not in central London. Right. But, or New um, York City or, or Boston or any other place exactly. that, that people live. Yeah, Exactly. So um, what that means is that they can be deployed and tested in constrained environments where you know what to expect, really. On the normal, you know, mixed vehicle environment like a city, there is uh, level two. There's level three, meaning there's autonomous features where the vehicle can take over on highway driving, for instance, again, where there's no people around it. So like with, like with Tesla, Tesla's Tesla, autopilot. Exactly. Yeah. Or um, I think Audi, Audi mm-hmm. also has, um, has a level three um, uh, vehicles. So that's for highway. But for anything that's mixed environment, so what we would call the most challenging or the most interesting ones, really, like, you know, London or New York and like urban environments, there is no autonomous vehicle that would navigate that. Would you be willing to wager a guess on how far we are from having a majority of vehicles on the road with level five technology? It's obviously a difficult thing to answer. I would say we will have a long period where there will be hybrid vehicles. And I would expect that 
autonomous, maybe not level five. Let's say level four. That's already far enough. <laughs> level four vehicles will be driving in, 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 in more constrained environments, maybe even taking over parts of public transportation. So maybe on-demand transit transportation. Um, but we'll see a long, long time where there will be hybrid vehicles. So maybe it will always be hybrid vehicles as well. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, something that hasn't been really sure. discussed or, or solved. Yeah, I imagine there are some people who will refuse to give up their, you know, their Ford F one fifty trucks that they yeah, can exactly. drive themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not. We're not going to force people probably to to give up their self drive cars. But what is it that really makes all of this so hard? You know, can you sort of break down the technology stack for us and some of the key challenges that are posed? Yeah, if you imagine yourself as a driver. As when you're sitting behind the steering wheel or even as a pedestrian or cyclist, there's all these different things that happen around you. Just, you know, because we're, we're in central London, just walking, cycling or driving through central London, you have to take action all the time. So there might be a, another cyclist crossing your path. There might be someone with a baby buggy, someone, you know, carrying a lot of shopping bags, a cab driver going around the corner, a London bus uh, and all of those different things. And it's the mixed environment, let's call it unpredictable, like hard to predict things that make it so challenging. Humans as people, we're almost tuned to recognizing things in split seconds and reacting immediately, right? That's that's how we work. Um, and so we make mistakes, but still we're, we're quite good at it. An autonomous vehicle needs to be able to understand all the things humans do better, they claim, in an environment. And that's what makes it really hard. And so there's different different levels of software, different levels of of, of modules almost to have to feed into that. And, and it needs to work in snow and rain and summer and London and New York and, and Delhi. And yep. that's that's the hard part. And it seems like there are a lot of companies that are building their own full stack solutions, or at least those are the ones that I think people probably are most familiar with. A number now that are also focused on simulations, so mm-hmm. different simulated environments so that you can get those, whatever it is, 10 billion miles driven to, to be able to train a system. And it seemed like there's been a lot of academic research on this pedestrian vehicle interaction where you focus, but not a lot of people commercializing it. So I was curious, why did you and your team decide to focus here? What's sort of the background the idea for humanizing autonomy was born about three years ago. And that was an interesting time. Everyone was talking about autonomous vehicles. And based on, on, on 2016, 2017, there would be autonomous vehicles everywhere today because everywhere was peak hype, we could almost call it. But no one was thinking of, of, of pedestrians. No one was, was thinking about how does it affect a city, but also that not only people inside the car, but pedestrians and cyclists are a key element of any urban environment or any environment, really. Our team, um, my two co-founders and myself, we, we come from, you know, engineering, but also architecture, human-machine interaction. So looking at the person, the human factors was always key for us. And, and, and we were really surprised that the industry was not looking at this topic at all. Um, and this is where we, where we started building the product and started testing it with people. And this is how the company was born. I'd imagine that predicting people's behavior is really hard. I mean, as a as a human, I find that incredibly difficult. <laughs> I feel like I could make a lot of money if I could do that better. Is it that we need to give machines personalities or um, certain sensitivity? What is it that, that sort of we need from these machines in order to allow them to interact with pedestrians and human beings more effectively? We believe that as the you know, almost as the first or main step, what we need is an autonomous car to be able to to understand what someone might be doing, right? If we narrow this down to an urban environment, we want to know if someone's, you know, alert or distracted or if someone's about to cross the street or even across the path of a car, because ultimately it is about reducing accidents or preventing accidents mm-hmm. and then assessing risk, but also about building trust. So that means that a vehicle needs to know when someone on the sidewalk 
is actually, you know, just looking at the phone and just, you know, standing there or actually about to cross the path. And it's all those things of kind of looking in the future, looking a couple of seconds in the future, what might happen that really matter for the autonomous car or automated car. And with that information, there are a number of things that can be done. If it's lower levels of automation, a driver can be alerted. So please brake, um, pay attention. The vehicle itself can brake um, or adapt their speed based on what is happening around it. Or it can communicate and interact with the pedestrian. So it's really this understanding that then enables action from side of the vehicle. How are you able to actually predict or how are you thinking about being able to predict, you know, my intention of you know, standing on a sidewalk and looking at a map versus standing on the sidewalk and, and about to cross the street? How do you guys actually do that? So it's based on two things. One is that we work with vision-based sensors. That means that we can work with any type of video footage that we receive that can be from a dash cam, coming from an autonomous car, coming from a roadside unit, from a bus, anything really. That allows us to collect a lot of different environments and instances that might not be possible if you work purely with autonomous sensors. So you get the diversity of the street, really. At the second point, we do look at different actions and things that people do in the street. So, for instance, if someone's distracted, you can be distracted because you're eating a sandwich, because you're talking to a friend, because you're, you know, looking at your phone or many, many other things. So in order to assess distraction, you need to understand all those underlying things that someone might be doing and put them together to come up with a prediction. And I would imagine that sort of variety of data is very important here. So you mentioned using different types of camera data, sensors, you know, data from different geographies, weather conditions, resolutions. How do you select what kinds of data sources are going to be valuable and which to ignore or not use? Our approach is to be as diverse as possible in the data sources and the type of data that we get. Um, we see our product or software to add a lot of value to not just autonomous vehicles, but also any fleet, you know, London buses, taxis, and any car on the street today that is prone to have accidents. What that means for the data that we that we collect is that we really look for diversity. Um, the more night and daytime and, and, and rain and, and snow data we can get, the more robust the system gets. How important is it for you to be able to get data from multiple types of, of cities versus just one that may exhibit lots of characteristics from other places? We see this as a global solution. That means that we have different cities where we collect data from and we work with the cities and work with customers in the cities, such as quite ap- active in Michigan and Detroit, same in Germany and different cities in Germany, also in Japan. Mm-hmm. Japan must be a fascinating place yes, to it's, it's, <laughs> figure yeah. out pedestrian behavior. It's quite interesting <laughs> to compare to you know, how people act in London versus in Tokyo. Sure. So, I mean, there's a whole element of cultural behavior, mm-hmm. how people act in different cultures, and it's the traffic culture, it's the legal environment, and all of those things need to feed into into the product. Um, so it's important to have, you know, different cases, different cities. And that way, do you imagine a future where there's a button you push, maybe when you're in a car that's in, in Japan versus in Mumbai versus in Sydney versus New York City? We want the product to be transferable, so there's... You know, from a current uh, machine learning or AI approach, um, we want this product to be easy to tune to, let's say, Tokyo mm-hmm. or, you know, any other um, any other city, really, without having to retrain with a lot of data. Mm-hmm. On the commercial side, really, yes, it's um, vehicles operate in different geographies. Some travel across geographies, mm-hmm. some are more located, you know, in South Asia versus Central Europe. And these are where the nuances of the software will come in and play in. And are there any data sources that you don't have access to yet, but that you would really love to? Like thinking about it, what is quite really important is if you look at different vulnerable road users, like for instance, people with disabilities or families, people with walking frames, wheelchairs, and so on. There's 
hardly any data really available on, on, on the most vulnerable road users. Mm-hmm. So we're even thinking of, we're working on towards that and, and building these data sets. With all these data sources that you have access to, where are you actually getting the data from? So we engage in partnerships in different cities with different, you know, with customers, also transit authorities and cities to get access to data, um, to train our system and to make our system better and safer. We work with uh, vision data, basically camera data from, from different types of cameras. There can be a dash cam, there can be a CCTV of a, of a bus, for instance, um, or that can be um, from the sensors of an autonomous car. Uh, we have several data partnerships and several partnerships with different transit authorities. Uh, one notable one is uh, Transport for London, mm-hmm. where we work with Transport for London on their bus safety standards, really, to achieve Vision Zero goals. Are there a lot of private providers of data or is it mostly public? It's a mix, really. We work with both private uh, sources, public sources, customers. It's really about creating this diverse mix of data mm-hmm. that we can use for and, and train our software with. And is GDPR a challenge for you? It is important for us, very important. Very early on, we decided, um, even pre-GDPR, but now with GDPR, you know, have no personal data. So basically any data that we receive and we ingest gets anonymized and pseudonymized completely from the very beginning. So there's no personal data reaching us really. Being GDPR compliant, of course, is really important, particularly working with international organizations also outside the UK. I know that in many markets from a regulatory perspective, there are some challenges around the way that the AI being employed can be audited. So as opposed to just sort of feeding into a black box and getting a decision and not knowing where it comes from, regulators are saying we need to understand how these systems are making the decisions that they are and we need to be able to back into it. Is that a challenge for you guys uh, as you're building you know, your technology and sort of how do you think about that? From day one, we decided we're never going to work, you know, build this black box. We're never going to build an end-to-end system, essentially. What that means is that we have different modules and you can, you can backtrace to those modules and you can, um, any high-level feature prediction is made up from several, several recognitions, several different features. Um, and this allows us to help towards making the black box problem less, less of a problem and more accessible. What does modular mean? Like, what are examples of modules? We're looking whether someone is at risk, whether someone is about to, you know, cross the path of a vehicle. There might be an accident, um, but also whether someone's intending to cross or not. The best way to imagine it is different building blocks. What that means is that if someone is at risk because they're in crossing the street, might be crossing the path of a car, there's a lot of things that their software needs to look at, you know. You might be expressing risky behavior because you're distracted, because you're alert, because you're talking to friends or looking at your phone. So essentially, it's the different building blocks that modules are almost like different actions that people express, the environments they're in, and, and, and many other instances that feed to the prediction. So it's never just one thing. There's a lot of things that affect the situation. In that example, just I'm trying to understand it in my mind, what would the modules be to like looking at a person to determine if they're distracted? Or is it a distracted distraction module that has all of those different sort of types of distraction within it? Yeah. So I think um, in that specific example, let's say someone is at risk, right? Mm-hmm. Someone is about to have a collision with a car and we're trying to prevent it. There's so many things that someone might be doing in order to express risk. And that could be someone being distracted, someone looking at the phone, someone chatting to friends and all of those things. So in, in the example of the modules would be to understand what the different components are to lead to this risk, creating the prediction based on that. So those sort of different types of distraction. For instance, different for types instance. of behaviors and yeah. actions that someone expresses in order to be risky. 
is it like I don't know, behavioral scientists who help you determine what those are? Yeah, yeah. One of our very first hires was, um, you know, behavioral scientists, behavioral data scientists. So we have a behavioral data science team, which means that there are people with uh, psychology backgrounds, data science backgrounds. And what they do is to really understand what do people do in the streets and what leads to certain actions. And this allows us to to feed into our prediction models. Interesting. Do they spend a lot of time on the street just like observing people <laughs> and taking notes on the crazy stuff people are doing around Piccadilly Circus? And yeah, they just spend a lot of time like really dissecting data and understanding that, but it's it's more it's more more computational. Yeah. Really interesting. <laughs> and can the system automatically recognize what modules it needs to access in order to to make a decision or is that something that you build as part of the design? Once the system is integrated into a vehicle stack, then it does this all automatically and and in real time. How do you think about integrating the technology that you're commercializing with everything from, you know, retrofitted vehicles that are already on the roads to the level four, level fives in the future? Is it very difficult to design processes that work with these multiple scenarios or is it you're sort of focused more near term and then we'll figure out how to do it with the more advanced vehicles? Our approach is to work with both, work with the retrofit applications, fleets on the streets today and autonomous vehicles. Um, vehicles with higher levels of automation. What is key here is, well, on one hand, is the data source, being able to work with various types of visual sensors, but even more than that, the processing requirements, to what type of chips does our product run on. And we're claiming that we're building a plug-and-play solution, a solution that can be integrated, uh, you know, across levels of autonomy. That means to me to work with the computing requirements that an existing vehicle on the street has versus an autonomous car. So um, it's about reducing footprint and making the product applicable to those. I think that ethics in AI is a very important and relevant topic in this space. It's one that actually we at Samsung Next just hosted a leadership dinner on in New York City. And I'm curious how your team sort of approaches that challenge in building your system, given that you're you're going to be helping machines make decisions about what to do in difficult situations, you know, with human beings. I agree. Um, ethics and AI is a topic that I'm really pleased to see that it's, there's a lot of it going on from government level to corporate level to engage in this conversation. We aim to understand the most vulnerable road users and types of people that might need further assistance, for instance, or might need, you know, certain recognition from, from the machine. But from the level of how we build the software, we don't necessarily distinguish um, genders or, or certain things. So we look at what might this person be doing next and try to um, take certain classifications almost out of our system. It's, it's a sensitive topic there, and it's, it's a question no personal data should be stored mm -hmm. by any program that we build. Are ethics in AI something that you guys are actively participating in discussions, I imagine, with other sort of stakeholders in the autonomous community, with the government? Um, I know that's a pretty big topic here in the UK. Yeah, so um, we have a public policy team. As part of that, we work with the World Economic Forum, but also UK government and German government to uh, European Commission to really push the agenda for ethical decision making in AI. And do you think that's something that will ultimately be regulated by governments? Like we'll have certain rules that everyone has to abide by. Will it be, you know, more geographically specific? Different countries may have, you know, different takes on it. Or do you think it'll be a global standard? We want it to be a global standard. I yeah. think it's a long way to a path towards it. Mm -hmm. As a first step, different countries need to take possession of topics like, you know, how safe is safe enough? When will an automated car be allowed to drive through central London? What type of level of recognition or of you know, different instances of vulnerable road users, people, do, does the vehicle need to have and how, how, 
well does it have to recognize those things? So that's on national level, really. At the same time, we see a lot of industry consortiums creating alliances more internationally. There's certain, you know, international alliances, certain national ones, but our goal here is really to work towards a global standard because ultimately that, that's what needed. So you're in the process of commercializing the technology that you developed out of university with, uh, with several partners like Daimler and Airbus. What kind of feedback are you getting from them in terms of their needs right now, their timeline for getting to full autonomy? What's the focus for them over the next, call it 12 to 24 months? And what we see in, with both um, car manufacturers and, and automotive suppliers is that there's two main focus points, really. One is commercializing autonomous vehicles. So as we know, everyone is investing heavily in, in, in making, you know, level four autonomous vehicles reality. But on the other side, there's also um, the efforts of taking parts of the technology, autonomous technology out and deploying it in, in production vehicles today, like as for driver assist systems or fleet safety. I would say almost any OEM or car manufacturer or supplier we talk to has those two paths and they're both equally relevant, one more on the production side and one on the future deployment side. And are those generally separate teams within the organization? Sometimes they're separate teams, sometimes they're under one one umbrella. So that's almost a case-by-case basis. What are you finding that people are most excited about? I feel like robo-taxis, the idea of having a fleet of self-driving taxis, which is what a number of the full-stack players are, are attempting to launch in the more near term, seems to be the thing that dominates the news. But is that what people within the industry are actually really excited about? Do they think that is the thing that we should all be working towards? Or are there other sort of areas that they're more engaged on? One thing is, is to make this commercially successful. That is rubber taxes, right? That's the business model side. Make Having a business model that is not based on privately owned vehicles, but, you know, more on transit systems. The other one is almost adjacent industries like logistics, um, where we see a lot of autonomous vehicle development. What is particularly interesting for us as well is the standards development. What we've been observing over the last year is that different stakeholders come together to start defining the standard, you know, and almost share knowledge and share insights. Just, you know, coming back to the basic question, if you want to drive through London, if you want to drive through Berlin, what do you need to know? What capabilities do you need to have? And that there's been a really open discourse across conferences, but also across the news. And do you feel like the pace of technological development is increasing right now with all of the investment that's been put into this space? Or is it still sort of slow and steady? We've got a lot of work to do before we're actually going to be able to realize a lot of this. There's been a almost like a common theme around there is a lot of stuff to do until we get autonomous vehicle on the mm-hmm. street. And that's definitely a different tone than what we heard two years ago. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, there was a lot of promise around having all those fleets in big cities now. But this is something that I, I, I do really welcome, a more, you know, reasonable approach, I would almost say, that um, it takes a long time to certain types of technology or parts of the technology we can commercialize today. And then with that, it's all about technology development, but also public acceptance. And it needs to be those two things that play with each other in order to make sure that new technology gets adopted in the right way and and in a mindful way. Similar to your vehicle pedestrian focus, do you think there are other areas of the maybe of the tech stack that people are less focused on that should have, you know, more investment or or focus put on them right now? Where there's been a big focus um, quite recently is uh, simulation. Mm -hmm recognizing that there needs to be a diverse, very diverse data set in order to train automated vehicle stacks for different instances to be able to provide this data. I think is has been a 
really great, a great advance in as well. So that would be one example, I would say. Really anything that helps to diversify the learning mm-hmm. of the automated vehicle stack. What startups or scale-ups are you keeping a close eye on in the AV or human computer interaction space? There's a couple of startups that are really interesting, um, particularly on the full-stack side, the likes of May Mobility uh, in an Arbor or Voyage in the Bay Area. Voyage is a great example because they're testing with retirement communities. It's a constrained environment like mm-hmm. we, we see often in autonomous vehicle testing, but it's still with very vulnerable road users. That's mm-hmm. a really interesting approach. May Mobility, they... Um, Again, they look at geofenced areas, mm-hmm. but they actually have real customers that they deploy with. We're also very interested in, in, in other levels of, of almost ride sharing, like Kareem in the Middle East, um, when you expose business models that are proven in Europe and the US, but to other environments and, and actually make them work. If you had to narrow it down to a couple of key components that we really need to nail in order to get autonomous vehicles on the road... What would those be? The most important one, I would say, is, is human safety. Over the last years, while traffic fatalities are decreasing, pedestrian and cyclist fatalities are actually increasing. That's hmm. quite a troubling sign. Being able to actually, you know, help any city to achieve Vision Zero, what it means, no pedestrian fatalities by 2041. That's almost the most important, you know, most important thing to have no further accidents while testing, deploying autonomous vehicles. The second one is more around the business model, creating a successful service that people actually trust and that actually caters for people. Autonomous taxis, robo-taxis are a term that's um, mentioned uh, quite frequently in the in the industry. What that means is that there will be no driver and we'll be having systems, vehicles that carry different types of passengers around the city. Being able to really cater to the needs of those passengers. So that means if someone has has disabilities, um, if someone's, you know, traveling with children, groups of people, elderly. Yeah, what if you do if someone needs help getting into the vehicle? Exactly. For instance, like if there's no driver, this is what a driver does today, right? Helping you get your heavy bag in or whatever it might be. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And if that is something, when there's no driver behind the wheel, then the vehicle's sensing system needs to recognize the need of the pedestrian turning passenger. And that's really, really critical in order... I believe, for any success of autonomous technology and particularly the winning business model of service, whoever might provide it will need to include this. Yeah. I would imagine that in the future, like those kinds of services would have to have some sort of call center or centralized place where people could in the vehicle or getting in could push a button and be able to talk to a person. I mean, I don't know if that's a a separate business model or part of something that would need to be baked in. But in those situations, it's it's sometimes difficult for me to imagine that everything can be completely autonomous and everyone's sort of on their own. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, having like taking the human component out completely, that's a real challenge. Particularly if you think about support and if you think about all the types of people that get into a bus or into a taxi today and how often the driver actually needs to respond and, and, and mitigate things and, 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 you know, help. An autonomous system needs to be doing all of this. Do you think there's a future situation where we, we end up having attendants of some kind who are in all or some of the vehicles to be able to provide sort of that customer service function and not the driving function? Yeah, I could really imagine that. Um, like, for instance, in larger transit systems like a bus or a tram or a train, mm-hmm. to have um, a person there providing support. But also trust, really, particularly mm-hmm. in, in early days sure. of technology deployment. Just explaining what's going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And best of luck with the year ahead. Lots of exciting things for you guys. Thanks a lot, Christina. 
Thanks so much for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every other week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers. Cheers.